You know, sometimes when we think about this passage and really consider it, we think, man, I'm not sure how close uh, I am to living up to that. Actually, I find myself being very far from that. I think about sometimes, and you maybe have met them, um, there are men in a home, fathers and husbands, who are so caught up in their own lives that they are never really reflecting on how they are really to serve their family. That They might talk a good game. That They know all the right answers, biblically, they can answer things and they are very evidently heavenly minded, at least in speech. And yet, they are oblivious to their wives or children. Sometimes you watch them and you think, you're a parent. That requires something of you. Not just to hear yourself talk but to actually serve. Children need to be parented. You are a father. It's not just being there, but truly being there. You are called to serve. Serving means that you are actively thinking about them at all times. Or you meet a mother in that same way, like I did not many weeks ago, and I was at a dealership, and I was sitting there, Anna's car was getting service, and she was totally not connected with what was going on with her children. Her children were raising themselves. And the people around them were actually trying to help raise them. Because she was not about serving. She served herself. She was living her life. You get around very long around people, you will see so often, again, a big talk, big talk, but not much action to follow it. You go to a business and you watch as people are engaged in it and you think, how are you serving the people there? Are you coming beside them? Are you coming up under them and trying to lift them up? Or is this all about you? It's the list goes on. Whatever hat you're wearing, it requires something of you. Do I always have the right attitude in my service? No. Do I fight to do that? Yes. Do I not always fight? I'm not always fighting for it, but I should be. It takes Work and diligent work to serve. You can't sit by idly. I think sometimes it's like when we think about that, even in the church, you think like it requires a lot of people serving. The big issue is not are people serving me? If that's the first question about like, how's this going to serve me? How is this going to build me up? How is this going to make me feel? You've missed it. Christianity is not a call for you to be served by others, but to serve others. And I think sometimes, like I said, some of the biggest talkers are the least ones to actually do something. 
And it's, it's important because at the heart of this, it's calling you to follow in the footsteps of Christ. And it's demonstrating what that looks like. And, and I promise you, it is not just sitting around talking. It is doing It is learning to lay your life down and it's saying, I'm being intentional. I'm working diligently. I'm thinking at all times. I don't check out from parenting. I don't check out from being a husband. I don't check out from serving in the church. I don't check out. I don't have time. I don't have the luxury of doing that. I'm not called to that. And so I think it's important that we really examine this text and say, okay, do I really see this? Am I seeing this in my life? The reality is, is no, you're not seeing it perfectly in your life. It is a lifelong endeavor. It is difficult. It is not an easy call here. It is a call to give your life in service. Put your Hands to work in service. The latter part of John's gospel, verses 13 through 21, are composed uh, of um, really two things, for the most part, you could say. 13 through 17 are like this farewell discourse, or like Jesus' final communication with this new covenant people. 18 through 20 is the passion narrative that is describing his crucifixion and resurrection. So Jesus has been rejected by the Jews, and now he's going to communicate with this new community, and he is going to establish and prepare them for what is about to take place in their future service before he's gone. It is Thursday evening. He'll be crucified on Friday and then resurrected on Sunday. He's eating with the disciples. Some argue back and forth. Is this the Passover meal? Is he, or, or how are we supposed to read this? John doesn't deal with all that. So we're not going to deal with all that this morning. It is, for the most part, I think, like many believe, like this is that final meal he'll eat with his disciples uh, right before uh, Passover hits um, in, in, in its fullness, like which would be that Friday. But it's been a Passover is a celebration that lasts throughout a week. And so it, it's, it could be a long discussion. We're not going to get into all that. But I think at the heart of this, so we're looking at this as kind of the setting. Uh, wh- what are we dealing with? We'll see Jesus wash the disciples' feet, demonstrating what it means to serve one another. He is calling them to follow in this way, to follow him. Then the second half of this chapter, he says, I'm going to a place you cannot go. So that, in my opinion, so that you can do what I've called you to do. I mean, it's not just that, but there, that's, that's a lot of what's going on in chapter 13. John Piper summarizes it in the following way. Verses 1 through 20, for his sake and for your joy, go low. 21 through 38, you cannot follow me now. It, it's just, it, that's kind of the, I mean, that's pretty short. And sweet, but hopefully it'll help you as you move forward. Verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when the Jews knew that his hour had come, I'm sorry, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Okay? 
So you could say that summarizes the ministry of Jesus. He loved his own. He, or you could say he has been loving his own. He will love them to the end. Very simply, I think, brings that to us. He's been gathering his flock. He gathers them. He calls them by name. And he lays his life down for them. He has set his covenant love upon his people. He will love them all the way to the end. He will accomplish what he says he would do. The New Testament uh, describes Jesus' relationship to his bride many different ways. Uh, sometimes as a church, uh, when he, or when he speaks to the church, he'll speak of the church as his bride and him as, their, as, as her husband. Uh, he came to save his bride. He loved her. And he would do so to the very end. There's a unique relationship that we see. Jesus came to save his people. He loved them in his life. He loves them through his death. He loves them eternally. The question maybe for you is, do you really know the love of Christ? Paul says it surpasses knowledge. It's not just something you can gain intellectually. It, it, it goes beyond that. It's something that is spiritually received to truly know his love. Verse 20 says, as you kind of, and I think it's just helpful to see it go down there real quick. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So he's, he's saying, I've loved them to the very end, and then he's going to return to the Father, and they're going to be left to accomplish this work. What Jesus was to the Father displaying his love, then they will be to the world displaying his love. So he's preparing them to do that. He's going to send them as representatives in his name. And really to receive like this representative in Jesus name is to be saved, to be brought in. So they're going to go out and display that to the world. They're going to humble themselves in sacrificial service to draw forth his people from every tribe, tongue and nation. Verse two and three, during the supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. To betray Jesus, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was going back to God, knowing that he's going to rise from supper there. But I think it's just important to note here in verses 2 and 3, Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hand. Jesus knew what was taking place. It, he, he was the, the last one that needed to be bowing down in service. He was the Lord of all. He knew that he was going back to the Father. He had come from the Father. He's going back to the Father. The only one in the room that deserved the kind of treatment that was about to be given out was Jesus. Because of his great place, he was supremely high above everything. He is not the one to be served here, and yet he does serve. Verse 4. 
He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. This is a work of a slave, the lowliest of slaves. Again, he is showing them what it is like to be his disciples and to go out into the world. Verse, um, and I think it's just important just to look at verse 12 through 16 real quick. It says, when he had washed their feet and put, out, uh, uh, um, put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? It's, it's a way of like he's explaining what he is doing. He's not the one that should be doing what he is doing, but he is doing what he is doing to give them an example of what it is like to follow God. To, 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 to act like the Lord. Again, he's sending them out to represent him and, and he is showing them, remember, as I represented the Father, so now you represent me and what does that look like? It's service. You remember Matthew 20, Jesus said, It is not so among you to the disciples, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Jesus goes low and demonstrates for them this in a very powerful way. He says, you are to wash one another's feet. What would it look like for you to do that? People around Jesus, oftentimes, unless they wanted to kill him, they wanted to put him on a pedestal. Right? People do that at all levels of leadership. Sometimes the further you go in leadership, in whatever capacity, people are always, they they either love you or hate you. The ones who love you, exalt you. The ones who hate you, hate you. I mean, you know, that's just the nature of the beast, you know. But like as you... Are they, they, but those who love you may want to lift you up. And he's saying, no, that is not the road. You, you, although you may be lifted up at some level, you are to continually go low. You're to continually lay down your life. And I think it's important, again, as God's, as Christ's representative in this world, what we saw in verse 20, in the world, as his representatives, it's important to say, as you potentially, again, do a good job in life, whatever you're doing, and you climb some level of ladder in this life, there will be more people serving you. And the higher you go up, the lower you should seek to go. Something I think that we should see. If you're a coach, teacher, supervisor, pastor, president of a company, whatever, you are to go low. Verses 18 and 19 here, I just think it's important. We're going to kind of move around here, but I just want you to see. It says, I'm not speaking of all you, other of you when he's dealing with things. He, he is going to deal with the issue of Judas. And why does he deal with Judas? I think Judas becomes an example of the opposite of what you should be. Judas is put in this place of authority, holding the money bag, using it for his own gain. He's the exact opposite of what it means to go low, to be a servant. He is serving himself rather than serving the people. And he will serve himself by selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. 
I, I just think it's helpful for us to really consider what he is calling us to. Notice what he says. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. You might say, Jesus, you chose Judas. Not in this way. That he's speaking of here. Judas was one who was certainly chosen among the twelve, but he was also chosen or marked out to be a betrayer. Now, you might ask yourself just this morning as we're thinking about this, because I now skipped a few verses, I know, but we're going to deal with it. You might ask, who is fit to be a representative of Jesus in the world? Those who gladly go low in service. The kind of people qualified are those who, not begrudgingly, but joyfully pursue going low. And I'll be honest with you, that's not easy to do. It's a struggle for me all the time. Actually, it was messing with Anna. I was sitting on the couch the other night and was like, need a little more popcorn in my little weird eating popcorn. I was like, you know, we got to wash each other's feet. She was like, oh, my goodness. And she went in there and got it. I was like, she, you're really embodying this. I was like, oh, well, I probably like misapplied that. Don't y'all think just a little bit? Yeah. But it is like that kind of, it is one of those things where we're constantly having to fight against that tendency. And I think some of us um, certainly maybe in different areas deal with that in a more difficult way. Oftentimes, maybe the things that I think are my greatest needs, you know, my greatest need, my, I, I, need I need this. That, that's the thing where I can like want to push on other people, serve me in that. I need it, serve me in that, you know. It's a dangerous place to be, but here, again, we're seeing him demonstrate for us what it is to truly serve. Now, Let's go back up to verse 6 through 11. Simon Peter, uh, he, he looks at this situation and says, Jesus, you're never going to wash my feet. Jesus says to Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no share. It's a way of saying you're a Judas. Peter, of course, in response says, not only my feet, but my hands and my head. Now, when you deal with this, this kind of gets into some like tricky thing I, I don't i don't i'm not 100 percent how to like know what to do with all of that he says y'all are you're already clean and i think you could say the 11 because they've been born again and truly trust not not the whole 12 but the 11 you could say and and they're already clean they've they've already come to a saving knowledge of jesus christ they've already responded to him Rightly, they're truly his sheep. He's already said, he, they're, they're my sheep and no one can pluck them out of my hand. They're, they've been washed. Could it be here that Jesus is speaking of like the, the ongoing kind of process of washing that, that, that is part of what it means? And John Piper brings this out. I thought it was helpful. He says, the repeated necessity for washing feet represents our daily confession of sin and turning to Jesus for ongoing applications for what he's accomplished for us on the cross. It's, it's learning to continually come before him and, and, and allow that cleansing, not, 
not not that we're not already in him, but that 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 ongoing process of of, of learning to lay aside sin and and walk in that cleansing, the, the, the work even we do to one another is helping each other like deal with the sin that may be easily entangling us and encouraging one another in it. You may see this differently and that's okay. I'm not sure exactly how would put all that together, but I think it's important just to think about that and spend some time examining that. Another thing just to say is, I think when we're talking about going low in this text, I think you could say, first you go low because Jesus went low. He, he bowed himself down, he laid his life down. And a second you might say, because for joy, like we might enjoy him, we might enjoy growing in him because the world will tell you like joy is found in being served some people their whole lives are kind of bought into this lie where it's like the higher you go on the food chain the more people serve you they take care of this 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 and even though you might not have servants living in your house you have servants that are doing everything for you and we think maybe we even buy into the world's lie that joy is found there. But reality is, joy is found in living and in following Jesus. And then you might say, we, we're, we should go low because we've, we're already clean. Should serve because he's cleansed us. Because we're thinking about the gospel and the work that he has already done on our behalf. Now... Let's move to the second section. First section, you follow in my footsteps. Second section, you can't. That, that's not, not now. At least at this moment, you cannot. So let's look at verse 21 and 22. We start here, and there are a number of things that you could pull from this, but I think one thing you could say is, in this text right here, Jesus is troubled in his spirit. Why is he troubled? What's going on in verses 21 and 22? You ever said like anxiety to someone, somebody's really anxious, and you could say like, that's a sin problem. You're afraid of something. You're fearful. You're anxious. You're not putting your trust in the Lord. Jesus' anxiety is not that. He is totally obedient to the Father, so there must be something else going on there. It may be that what we're dealing with here is the same thing you deal with when you see something, someone about to like walk away, about to turn their back from the faith, about to turn away from the things that would like lead to life and walk into death. It may be tied to what's going on with Judas here. Because he says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. You see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem as she is stiff-necked and hard-hearted in rejection. So to watch this rejection, you could say that, that troubled Jesus in his spirit. That very likely may be what is taking place there. It's part of what he had to bear, like seeing that his his infinite knowledge of what is taking place. Second thing that you see maybe in this text that will help you understand what's going on, verse 23 through 26, you kind of get to that place and you find out, okay, 
there's something going on in the disciples here, a discussion, and it's really centered around this disciple whom Jesus loved. Who is that? You know the disciple who Jesus loved, like that. You might say, "Well, I don't. Eat, I don't. Where's that? Where is that?" Well, at the end of twenty, in chapter twenty-one, at the end of John, we find out this beloved disciple is John, the writer of the uh, of this gospel and of the epistles and, and of the Revelation. He is there, and you notice what is taking place. This this disciple whom Jesus loved is sitting very, right at his side. Simon Peter looks at him and says, like, who is this that's going to betray? He's saying, like, John, gesturing, asked Jesus. And it appears that John asked Jesus, and really, maybe he's the only one that gets the answer at the table. He comes up to Jesus, leans towards him. He says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus speaks to him. It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. It appears that other people in the room, maybe not understanding this, but potentially you could say John here does get it. He understands what is about to take place. This is part of the process that is going on. Now, why, why would this be important? Maybe to help you understand there was an eyewitness that was there who actually spoke to Jesus understood exactly what was taking place and helped put the pieces together so that we understand what Jesus was doing and how he was in control of the circumstances here. Third thing is you see this again, uh, Jesus going to a place we cannot go at least right now. In verse 27 through 30, we're going to see this issue of the darkness and we'll see how Jesus is going to embrace that and walk into that so that he can destroy it. Then after he had taken the the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This idea of night here throughout the gospel is an idea of like that that Jesus is stepping into the darkness. Judas is embracing kind of he is walking out at night. Certainly it was in the evening, but probably even further in John as he alludes to things. This darkness that Judas is going into and Jesus is going to step into himself. is something that's very clear throughout this gospel. John Piper states, only Jesus can destroy the darkness by being enveloped by the darkness. Only Jesus can abolish death by being swallowed up. Only Jesus can disarm Satan by surrendering to his service. Remember what he said when the mob came. He says in Luke 22, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. So Judas is going into the darkness. This plan is is kind of stirring and Jesus is about to enter into it in order to defeat it. Fourth thing you see in verses 31, I think in 32, is that in those that darkest of hours, the glory is going to shine. Jesus is going a place that we cannot go now. He is entering into that darkness, but in the middle of that, He's going to display his glory in a powerful way. 
It says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Is that hard kind of phrase? You're like, what? What is going on here? Jesus, the Father and the Son in perfect concert, like they are working together all the way through John. I and the Father are one. And now we come to this place and we say, as Jesus is entering into this darkness, this is where the brightest of lights will ever shine. The Father and the Son mutually glorifying themselves in this. We see that, and it's very powerful. You'll see it oftentimes through the Son the father's glorified, and then the father turns around and honors the son. And that's what you see in Philippians 2, which is kind of a, a some people will say, an ancient hymn, where Jesus humbles himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, and then the father highly exalts him and gives him a name above every name, so that the father's glorified through the son's work. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful picture here. It's the greatest achievement Ever. It's the Father and the Son working together to destroy the darkness, to shatter it, to, to, to raise up a people that will, that, will, that, that will be saved and rescued forevermore. As we move forward in verses 33 through 38, we're going to skip 34 and 35, and I just want you to see. What is behind Jesus saying, you cannot follow me now? Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Why couldn't they follow him? Right then. There, there are a number of maybe reasons. One would be this. He says to Peter, you can't. You don't have the strength to do it. Later, Peter will. When the power comes down, when the Holy Spirit fills him, he'll, he'll be able to, to do this in a very powerful way. But in this moment, it's like you don't have what it takes. You don't have what it takes to do this. You, you, are, you are not capable of doing this right now. You, you, you will not be able to stand beside me when the trouble comes. But another thing that's very important, I think, too, is there's something Jesus was doing. He's going to become their substitute. They can't be the substitute. There's only one who is worthy of doing that. He will enter into the darkness and he will have to do it alone. He will willingly offer himself as a substitute for them. Now, look at verse 34 and 35. I just think it's important to see this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This new commandment is something that First John says is something that's old but then new. 
It's old in the sense that the law was given. And when the law was given, it embodied that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a summary of the law. But in a very powerful way, something new has happened because we have this example in Jesus. Life, death, burial, and resurrection that is unbelievably more graphic and, and on display like never before. You're, this, this is disclosed before us in a very powerful way. And that way it's new. And another way that it's new is just in, in the sense that the disciples now are going to be empowered by Jesus and, and the Spirit's going to come. And they're called to do something now with a changed heart that will transcend anything that had come before. So I think there's other things we could say about that, but I think it's just helpful for you to see it. Now let's pull this together. In the first part of this chapter, Jesus says, follow me. Follow me in your service. Like Serve like I have served. Lay your life down. Be the humblest of servants. Take your high position. Jesus is going to give them a very high position. The reality is some of you, and I myself too, don't really understand this. We have been given a very high position. To be children of God. To be servants of the Most High. To be in His family. To be a part of that. That's a very high position. There, there is no higher position that we could ever have than to say we are children of the King of the universe. It's a very high position. You could say, listen, like... You think this is a high position? You meet people, you hear about people, you see people on the news. Do you think they have a high position? That, that's nothing. That is nothing compared to your position in Christ. You're children of God. You, you're in this high place. But in this high place, following the footsteps of Jesus, who, who was the eternal Son of God, who came down to this earth and he laid down his life. You follow in that place. You become the lowliest of servants. And at the same time in this text, I think it's important that we see Jesus demonstrated that not only in the washing of the disciples' feet, but by willingly offering his life on the cross. He did what we could never do so that we could do what he's called us to do. You get that? He did what we could never do for ourselves so that we could do what he's called us to do. So it would empower us to do that. So I started with saying like, you, you, you know, it's, it, talk is cheap. But following Christ as one who has been redeemed by him, rescued by him, saved by him, placed into his family. What it will look like is it will shape the way that you live out every hat you've been given. It will shape the way you serve your wife if you're a husband. It will, it will shape the way you serve your husband if you're a wife. It will shape the way that you serve as a father of your children or a mother of your children. It will shape that. It will change that. It will reorient that. It will shape the way you work in the, in the, in the world, in the sphere that God has placed you in. He is calling us to lay down our lives, to go low, to lift others up. It will shape the way that you serve in this church. It will shape the way that you involve your life and your neighbors' lives. And how you serve them and give to them. It will shape the way that you look at the world. The world is not here for you. You are here for the world. And you say, well, we're, we're God's kids. 
We're, we're in this extremely high position. You say, yeah, and how did God's kid, how did the eternal son of God interact in this world? It will shape the way you do that. He said, I am a servant not to be served. It's not like I'm climbing the ladder so that there will be so many up under me who will serve me all the more. It's rather as I am lifted up in this age, potentially at times, I'm going back down to lift other people up. I'm seeing and savoring Christ and what he has done and seeking to put that into practice in every aspect of my life. He spent a little time with his disciples. Saying, you want to see a true disciple? They are forgetting themselves, focusing on the Savior, following in his footsteps, and impacting those around them for the good. And that's where joy is found and blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would give us a heart to live out what it means to be in your family, your children, your servants. You have given us a high place. You have blessed us immeasurably. Every spiritual blessing. The scripture says we're already kings. We already reign with Christ. And yet we are following him. While it is our time here, we are following him. And not standing there in this exalted position. But laying down those things, those places of wonderful privilege. So that we might give and serve others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.